by the community. They loathe him, absolutely hate the man. And there's a reason for that, because as a conquered nation, Israel, under military rule, under Roman law, heavily taxed by the occupying power of Rome. And there are these tax collectors who go around on Rome's behalf, and they collect money on Rome's behalf. And so Zacchaeus is one of those guys. In fact, we read here that he is the chief tax collector. He's the arch tax collector. That's probably why he's in Jericho, because Jericho was a, a great business center. So he's there on behalf of the Roman occupying force, collecting money for taxes for them. And what is more, because he has Roman backing, he has the backing of, of the soldiers, he actually extracts more than he needs to. That's why he's so hated, because he's actually extorting the people more than what the Romans would require. That's why tax collectors were so hated, because they were partnering with the occupying force of Rome and actually ensuring that none of the money actually got to the people, and at the same time they were keeping the people in, in enslavement to the Roman Empire. So they were absolutely hated. He's an outcast. In fact, it says that he's despised, that he's called a sinner, and... Um, an outcast in the community. And I was just thinking a modern equivalent, not quite the same, but perhaps people would feel the same about drug dealers today as they would feel about Zacchaeus. Someone who makes money off the community by exploiting people who are addicted to drugs, selling drugs, making a, a vast fortune out of other people's misfortune. Or, uh, with all respect to the banking center, mortgage, mortgage providers who perhaps sell mortgages to people they know can't repay the money and exploit people just for the sake of their own economic provisions. And so I think those might be similar things where people might be as hated. But Zacchaeus was, was hated. He was seen as a traitor, a betrayer of his community. And you have to stop when you read the story and think, well, why would someone want to do that? <laughs> I mean, why would want to, someone willingly embrace being an outcast and being hated by his own people and his own community. Why would anyone do that? Well, it's a very simple answer. The lure of money was just too strong. Zacchaeus, the idol of his heart, was a financial one. He had sold, he had given him his life over completely to money. He had sacrificed for it. He had paid a big price for it. And the, the idol of his heart was money. And so he was quite happy to be the outcast in his community, possibly his family too, quite happy for suffering to be upon his family for the sake of money, the idol of his heart. So last week when I was uh, introducing this really, that Paul says in Colossians chapter 3 and Ephesians 5 that greed is idolatry. Okay? He says greed is idolatry. And if you go through the Gospel of Luke, Luke is actually saying the same thing of a number of chapters. If you read in Luke chapter 12, verse 15, Jesus says to them, he says, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. That's another word for greed. Covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of your possessions. Jesus makes a warning. He says, take care what you give your, your heart to because our lives do not revolve around the abundance of our possessions. I had to say when I was in, uh, in Nairobi, that was a profound, profound time for me as well. And I think a number of things I just want to say. Just going away with eight guys and having no other agenda for the week other than fellowship and talking theology is a profound thing. 
And uh, I, I know that God has been bringing a lot of changes in the church. And one thing I do want to say is what's becoming more and more clear is how we don't want to build and more and more clear how we do want to build. We want to build in, around relationship. I'm taking a number of guys away to Provence in a couple of months, uh, weeks' time. We're going away for two days to taste wine and to taste of the living grape, Jesus. That's what we're going to do. We want to build relationally. We want to build with friendship, deep friendship, seven, centered around the cross of Christ, absolutely. Having fun with each other and enjoying God and discussing the deep things of God. I can think of nothing better. That's how we want to build in towards the future. You with me? The other thing that I just thought when I was there, we went and visited Kigara, which is the biggest slum in Africa. One million people. I've got it right. Uh, Patricia, right? Yeah? And... Um, if you think of Nairobi, Nairobi has 5 million people. There are 10 million people in London. Nairobi has probably one-tenth of the infrastructure of London. And so just getting from the airport to where we were staying took hours because we just couldn't get there. There were so many people. The roundabouts were just clogged up with cars and people, just people everywhere. And this thing came to me that Jesus says in the gospel, blessed are the poor for they are great in faith. We were chatting to Michael Eaton. He said, well, you know, one thing that you Westerners can bring, the Bible says you can't bring much faith because God has reserved great faith for the poor. That's what the Bible does say. He says, but what you can bring is provision. You can bring some money. Great, great challenge. And I'm not saying we can't have faith. I'm just saying, you know what I am saying. You hear what, the heart of what I'm saying. And so we went to Kigari and, and Crisco community. In the middle of the slum, they have bought... Uh, a piece, had a piece of land, and they put up a 2,000-seater auditorium. This is the beauty about this, what I'm about to sh share you. These people have nothing. Nothing. When I mean nothing, it's nothing. Jeremiah was telling us, the guy who runs Crisco Center, was telling us that some Koreans came to visit them, and uh, they were so overwhelmed by what they saw, because they'd never seen anything like that before, that they had to be counseled for days afterwards to recover. I'm not, I'm not kidding you. When you go to a slum like that, it is absolutely overwhelming if you have not seen it before. So these Koreans come, they come, they're faced with poverty like they've never seen before, and <laughs> they have to be counseled to help them go back to Korea in a stable kind of way. I'm not, I'm not lying. This is true. This is true. And in the middle of this community, the slum community, they raise the money themselves to put the building up. 2,000 cedar. Out of their own hearts, they just say, we want to give. And they give out of the little that they have, and they put up this building. In fact, Michael said they, they, they were both away one time. Both the pastors were away. And the people decided to take up an offering. And when they, when they got back, the money was given to them. Now, I want to be in that kind of church. We don't have to motivate. It's just the people, hey, we need to take up. There's some things we need to do. Let's just do it. And we'll bless the pastors when they come back, and the job is done. Man. Great faith. Absolutely challenging. Deeply, deeply challenging. So let's get back to uh, Zacchaeus. Take care. Be on your guard against all covetousness because your life does not consist on the abundance of your possessions. And in Luke 11 and Luke 12, if you go and read it, it's just the flow of, of that portion, Jesus continues to warn people about not worrying about what they own not worrying about their possessions. And I think 
that Jesus is doing something very subtle but absolutely profound. He's saying this, it's not only the love of money does not only mean about loving money. It also means about, he equates the two and says, if you worry about your possessions all the time, it's the same as greed. Just a different form of it all the time. If you're always worrying about what you have or what, that you're going to lose what you have, really the idol of our hearts is still a financial one. Are you with me? Don't worry about the abundance of your possessions. Later on, Jesus says it very clearly in Luke 16, verse 13. He says, no one can serve two masters. How many of you heard this scripture before? You can't serve both God and money. You will love one and hate the other. You'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God, uh, both God and money. And look at this. I never saw this before. The next little verse says, the Pharisees who were lovers of money heard these things and they ridiculed him. The Pharisees, the religious elite of the day, they love money. And they said, oh, Jesus, he's talking absolute bottle. He's talking rubbish. They ridiculed him. And Jesus, and he heard them, and he says in the next verse, you are those who justify yourself before men, but God knows your hearts. <laughs> God knows our hearts. We can froth and bubble and say whatever we like, but God knows the deep motivation of the heart. And he says, what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. We saw last week that when there are idols in our lives, we can, normally people do three things. They love idols, they trust idols, they obey idols. Lovers of money, how can you identify if you're a lover of money? Well, here are some pointers for you, and I'm not accusing anybody of anything this morning. Lovers of money are those that daydream about money. They think about how they can make more money. They fantasize about schemes of making money. Daily, how can we make more? I just want to say to you, if you are part of this church, regardless of how much money you make or don't make, I want to say to you, you have far more than you need. Go to Africa and see what you can exist on. We have more than what we need. We've been trying to help our boys. If you can change your clothes once a day, you're on the top 2% of the wealthiest people in the world. Did you know that? And so we can have a jumble sale and we can take our stuff and we can give away bags and bags and bags of clothes. You are in the top 2% of the wealthiest people of the world. If you can just change your underpants every day. We've got a lot to be thankful for. We have more than what we need. Amen. Okay, you're looking serious. I'm trying not to be intense. I'm actually so happy to be here and to preach the word of God to you this morning. Let's not be lovers of money. Let's not fantasize about money. We have more than we need. Let's kill that idol in our hearts. Secondly, trusters of money. They look to money for their security. We were just talking about some things about how the economy has been as we were in the, 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 the van driving between. Perhaps another crash is going to come. I don't know. It's highly likely that perhaps in the next five to seven years, there's going to be another major economic turndown. I just want to say to you, where's your security? If it's in the economy of this world and the economy of this nation, you might have some anxiety ahead of you. It's not over. Jesus is calling us back to Him as our primary security, our primary source of everything that is good and wonderful. Are you with me? Don't put your trust in that. It's going to bite you. And there are those we saw last week. When money becomes an idol, we can serve it. We can sell our souls to it. It becomes our king. And here in this portion, Jesus says, 
you either serve God or you serve money, one or the other. You know, sometimes we're blind to our own materialism. I had to say, I had to look into my own heart this week and say, actually, there are some things I've been blind to. There are some things in my life and in my, the way I've, what I value to, in terms of my family that I've blind to, been blind to materialism. Luke, Luke 12, we've mentioned already, Jesus says, watch out, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. And I was just thinking, you know, when Jesus says to, to um, in the gospel says, uh, and he's talking in the context of adultery, uh, sexual sin, he doesn't say, be careful that you are not committing adultery. He doesn't have to say that. I mean, when you are in bed with someone else's wife, you don't have to lie there. Uh, not that I have ever been in this example. You don't have to, in that moment, think, oh, I wonder if this is adultery. I mean, you know it is. Absolutely it is. I mean, you don't even have to think about it. But when it comes to greed and materialism, almost no one thinks it's them. It's always somebody else's problem. It's not our problem. We don't own it. We don't look deep into our hearts and say, actually, yes, there's an idol there that many, that, that needs to be dealt with. Many of us are in denial including me sometimes. And Zacchaeus is an example of all that Jesus has been teaching in Luke 11, 12, and up to Luke 16, that money had taken a hold of this man and so impacted him that it was all that he could exist for and dream about. And as a result, he was prepared for his family and his children to be put uh, marginalized by his community, and it controlled him, and he put it ahead of every other thing. I said last week, how many of us are not serving Pharaoh? How many of us are working 14 hours a day for Pharaoh every day of the week and we think it's going to give us some kind of significance and pleasure? God's calling us deeper and deeper with Him. Are you still happy here this morning? There's a delightful surprise in verse 3. I love verse 3. Verse 3 in my translation says this. He was seeking to see who Jesus was. There's the first little sign that the gospel is coming to this man. He was seeking to see who Jesus was. And he was a short guy. And so he, he tried to push through the crowd. You know why I think he couldn't get through the crowd? The people so hated him that they wouldn't let him get to the front. That's what I think. That's how hated he was. Because of his size, he couldn't push his way forward. And so he has to do the most undignified thing for a man of, religion, of social standing in his community. He has to get up a tree. I mean, that would not have been a dignified thing for this man. He's the tax collector. He's the main man. He's the, one of the financial gurus of his day. And now he has to climb up a tree just to get to see Jesus because no one will let him get close. Man, that's, that's putting your dignity to death. It is. He doesn't try and preserve his dignity. He wants to see this person, Jesus. And so he climbs up the sycamore tree and he waits until Jesus comes along. And the crowd is full of religious people. It's full of acceptable people. It's a moralistic crowd. And yet Jesus, out of all that crowd, he singles out the one man who knows he's a sinner. The tax collector. And Jesus not only talks to him, but he says, Zacchaeus, I've got to come with you to your house. I want to eat with you. <laughs> I mean, he really puts the... He whacks the, the, the religious people in the community. He just says, no, no, I'm not only going to talk to this man. I want to go and have dinner with you. I want to eat in your house. Man, that is unbelievable. A 
And so we look at Zacchaeus. He doesn't come to Jesus with a heart full of, heart full of pride. He doesn't stand on his dignity. He doesn't stand on his wealth. He's prepared to be ridiculed by the community just to get to see Jesus. Perhaps he had an inkling at this point that there was something about in this man that money couldn't buy. Oh, my, my. Okay, I'll just do it tighter again. Is that okay? As I was thinking about this, I thought I had this thought. Zacchaeus didn't ask Jesus into his life. Jesus asked Zacchaeus into his. Isn't that the grace of the gospel? God always finds us. God always reaches out into our lives. We don't even look for him and he finds us. Yeah, Zacchaeus, Jesus reaches right into his world when he's been excommunicated by everybody else in his, his community, his culture, his society, and Jesus reaches right into his life and he says, I want you. That's the gospel. Isn't that beautiful? I don't want to go to anyone else's house, Zacchaeus. Not the Pharisees, not the rich. I want to go to yours. Tax collector, I want to be with you. <laughs> and when Zacchaeus starts to see that, his whole perspective is changed. He begins to understand that he doesn't deserve this thing that Jesus has given him. He, he begins to understand that to be saved is a thing of grace. You don't deserve it. You don't follow a moral code, a moral code to achieve it. It's got nothing to do with your performance. It is a gift of God. That is the gospel to us. Gift of God to us, freely given. And what does it say? It says when he begins to realize that, it says he receives it with great, great joy. Man, that is good news. When you know you don't deserve it, you, there's nothing about your life that is warranted for it, and it is given to you as a free gift, it should, it should produce some joy in your heart. Thank you, God, that you've touched me, that you've saved me. This is the grace of God. This is the gospel. And then, a profound thing happens. Zacchaeus is a moment of self-realization. He starts to understand himself deeply. And he knows in an instant that for him, the thing that needs to be dealt with in his life is money. It's what he's given himself to. And he knows if he's going to follow Jesus, his attitude to money has to radically, radically change. And he has this profound moment of self-realization. And what does he do? He makes two absolutely remarkable decisions. In an instant, just like that. No one forcing him. No one encouraging him to do it. He just, the gospel hits him in the heart and he makes these two radical decisions. He says, I will give away 50% of my income to the poor. Half of what I have, I'm giving it. Just like that. Man, that's way beyond what the law required of him. The law said what? What did good Jews do? 10%, the tithe. Give that. The gospel comes to this man he, just, he does way more than that. He doesn't settle for the letter of the law. He gives away five times what the law requires because of the gratitude of his heart, because of what Jesus has done for him. He just says, oh God, half, give it. No problem. It's not got a hold of me anymore. Well, I want to tell you that when someone does that, you know their heart has been radically, radically affected. Because when the kingdom comes, if it doesn't come to our pockets, I'm not sure if it's really come at all. He knew that salvation was not from the law, but through grace. 
And so he didn't aim at fulfilling the letter of the law. We would do well to realize that as well. Amen? I've, led, I've been leading this church nine years, and many people have asked me about tithing on the income. And I think there are two key things here. Firstly, I think there's language that is not helpful. In the Old Testament, full-time workers are called priests. All right? It's not the language of the New Testament. We all know what, what when people call people priests, we know what they're trying to say, but it's not a helpful thing because it has to do with the Old. It has to do with Old Testament law and the Old Covenant. But that's why we don't call ourselves priests, all right? We're elders, which is a New Testament. In the same way, tithing, although I know what people mean when they say they're tithing, I've used the word many times, it's not, it's not helpful because it has connotations of the old. It has con- con- connotations of legalism and the law. And over a period of time, language starts to take on a meaning of its own. And that's the problem, okay? In the New Testament, when we look at finances, Jesus talks about giving. He talks about giving. He talks about how you should give, the attitude with which you should give it. And so the word tithe can quite easily still be connected with the old and have connotations of law and legalism. And I think it's not an intentional thing. Like I said, I think language kind of starts to have its own meaning over a period of time. And so inevitably, you are brought to this question, are we required as New Testament believers to tithe? And the simple answer is no. But let me just explain a little bit more clearly what I mean when I say no. See, it's not so clearly laid out in the New Testament. And so can I ask you some questions perhaps that will help us all to arrive at the, the answer that I think God wants to give us. Are we, have we received more of God's grace, more of God's truth, more of God's revelation under the new covenant or under the old, through the law of Moses? Received more or less? More. Absolutely. When Jesus died, did he tithe his blood on our behalf or did he give himself completely and fully? Did he hold anything back? No. So the logical answer, if we just think, that tithing really is a minimum requirement of what God calls us to do by grace. If we look at, the, if we look at what Zacchaeus did, he, he went far further than that. Far further. Just because the grace of God had impacted his life. I like what Michael Eden, I chatted to Michael Eden, he said, he said the grace of God, when it hit, impacts our life, it should make us super tithers. Super tithers. More than 10. Just easily, willingly, just give, because it's all God's anyway. No compulsion. No one jing up the thing. So we've actually made a conscious decision. We're going to leave our baskets here. And as act of worship, when you, God has touched you, you bring your giving and you give it. I'm not going to get up and beg for money any time. That's it. You're part of this community. You know what we are doing. If you believe in it, they're the baskets. That's it. When the revelation of God touched Zacchaeus' heart, it set him free immediately and he understood it. His love for Jesus affected his wallet in a radical way, not from a place of compulsion, but from a place of love. And that was it. And then, you know, secondly, that's the first thing. The second thing is amazing because he makes a decision around justice. He makes a decision around justice. He had cheated people out of money. He had charged them too much. And again, under the law, 
there was a provision for that. If you go and read Leviticus 5.16 or Numbers 5.7, it says, if you cheat anyone, you must pay the money back with interest. And so it says that you should give it back with 20% interest. All right? What does Zacchaeus do? Does he give back just 20%? He gives four times that, 300%. He just, poof, he gives it away. <laughs> That's incredible. You look like it's not incredible. I think it, when I saw that, it's so exciting. He just he responds immediately and he just says, Jesus says, when he sees him doing that, he says, today salvation has come to this house. That's it. He, does, he didn't say, if you live like this, then salvation will, will come to your house. No, he just says, salvation has come. Bam! Saved. Salvation doesn't come in response to a changed life. A changed life comes in response to salvation offered to us as a free gift. Man, that's a different motivation. Oh, that's the, that was the reason for Zacchaeus' new heart and life. You know, if he was responding to a moral code, he would have said this, how much must I give? How much must I give? If we're still talking about that, perhaps we're more under the law than we think we were. Just tell me how much I must do and I'll do it. <laughs> Wrong. The wrong thing. When Jesus comes and impacts his heart lavishly, his, his response is, how much can I give? He was financially rich, but he was spiritually bankrupt. He went from oppressing the poor to championing justice. He went from gathering as much as he could for himself to saying, where can I give this away? Man, that is the gospel come to someone's heart. Why? Well, it's simple. Jesus had replaced money as Zacchaeus' savior. And money was no longer a God to him. It was simply something to use for doing good and to serve others. He was now rooted in Christ as his security, his identity, his future. The grace of God had transformed him powerfully and eternally. All I can say is amen. And that's the gospel. Free gift to us. And as a result of that, God comes and changes our lives and transforms us forever. As the musicians come up, please, uh, we're going to worship again. Um, just in response, let's, let's let God come and feel these things in our hearts.